Well, we're going to go ahead and jump right in. Uh, for those of you who are visiting with us, uh, we're so glad to have you. Um, we are in a series uh, called the Love Command, and we are looking at various passages in the New Testament um, that talk about the kind of love that we are called to have for one another um, because of the love, the kind of love that God has for, for us. And today we're going to talk about the importance of, of words, of how we use our words, how we speak to one another, and how we talk about others when we're together, when we're around each other. And we're going to look at a passage today in the book of Ephesians. This is Paul's letter to the believers in Ephesus. And just like last week when Paul was addressing believers in Corinth, just like that, Paul is writing this letter to a church that is vastly diverse, that there are different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different cultures, worldviews, customs, and religious experiences, with the, the, the greatest dividing factor being the division between those who were culturally, religiously Jewish and those who, who weren't, the Gentiles. And thus Paul begins his letter, he spends a significant portion of this letter, the first half of it, reminding these Christians in Ephesus of what they have in common. Specifically, everything that God has done for them. He says, at one time, every single one of you were separated from God because of sin, because of disobedience. Yet because of God's great love for you, his mercy, kindness, grace, he granted forgiveness and reconciliation, sending his son Jesus to live a perfect life, to die a sinner's death so that our debts could be paid for, and so that united in Christ, we could be made worthy of every spiritual blessing, adopted and elevated to the status as son or daughter. And because we are united with Christ, because we have this unity with Jesus, he says you also are united with one another because you are united with Jesus. At one time, every single one of you were far from God, but now you have been brought near through Jesus, and therefore you are near to one another. And this bond that you have with each other is a bond that is far deeper, far greater, far more significant than any other bond you have even bond that is, even a bond that is through flesh and blood. So it's in this context that then Paul picks up in chapter 4, verse 1, and this is going to be our passage this morning, where he writes, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Paul says, make every effort. Verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit says, do everything you can. Try your hardest. Strive with everything you got to keep the unity. In other words, because you are united in Christ, 
live as if you were united. Because you are spiritually united, be united relationally. Uh, I have a younger brother. We're about two years apart. And when we were growing up and, you know, we'd be at home bickering and fighting and arguing, my parents would inevitably say something like, you know you only got one brother. Remember your brothers. I have two daughters now and they're two years apart. And when they start bickering with each other, right, Emily, Amber, and I was like, remember your sisters. You only have one sister. When all is said and done, you're only going to have each other. When we're not here anymore, it's just you two. Right? What, do we, what do we communicate? And we're saying, you're family, so act like family. Treat each other like family. And Paul is saying the same thing. He says, because you're spiritually united, live as if you are united. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, he gives us some practical examples, you know, practical ways to do it. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Right? So don't be kind of humble or mostly humble. He says, be completely humble and gentle towards one another. He says, be patient, bearing with one another. And this idea of bearing with one another, he's saying, put up with each other. Which, which means that Paul knows that this is hard. When a group of believers who are different and unique come together and they're trying to keep the unity, it, it's difficult. But he says, put up with each other. In other words, you know, there are going to be times when you've got to put your big kid pants on and suck it up and deal with it and walk it off and just work at it. Maintain the unity. Now, the purpose, the goal of unity, when we talk about unity, when we talk about peace, we're not talking about the absence of conflict. We're not talking about getting along and enjoying each other's company and being friends and buds. When Paul is talking about unity, when he's talking about peace, he's talking about a commitment to building each other up in the faith. It's an all-out commitment to help one another spiritually grow and mature to ultimately become like Jesus, individually, but more importantly, corporately as a church, that we grow to be like Christ. Now, last week, Pastor Donna talked about the importance of spiritual gifts, and Paul talks about it in verses 7 to 14, that a part of, of how we build one another up is we use our spiritual gifts, the gifts that God has been given us. And then in verse 15, which is our passage, which we're going to focus on, he talks about the importance of words, how we speak to one another. So picking up in verse 15, he says, instead... And what he means by instead, he said instead, in verse 14, he says, instead of remaining immature, instead of not growing and not becoming like Jesus, he says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head. That is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Paul says, by speaking the truth in love to one another, we will grow to become like Jesus. Individually, more importantly, corporately, as a body, as a church. Verse 15, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow. 
to become in every respect the mature body of him who is at the head, that is Christ. Right? How do we as church become like Jesus, grow to be like Jesus? By speaking the truth in love. How we speak to each other. How we talk when we're around each other. How we talk about others when we're together directly affects our ability to grow and mature. Whether we build up or whether we tear down. Whether we strengthen, whether we weaken. Whether we encourage, whether we discourage. Whether we foster growth and maturity or we hinder growth and maturity. You know, what's really interesting here is that in just a few verses before this, at the end of chapter 3, Paul, he writes this prayer request that he has for these believers in Ephesus, but also for all believers of all time. He says, in light of everything God has done for us, he says, my one prayer for you is that God would give you the supernatural ability to understand just how much he loves you. To grow in your understanding of his love for you. Look what he says in chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, here's why, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So he goes, I pray that God gives you the supernatural ability to grow in your understanding of how much he loves you, this love that surpasses knowledge, which means no matter how much you grasp, there's more to be grasped. And he says, I pray that God would give you that ability. Why? So that you could be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. So that you could become like Christ. So that you could grow to be like him. I pray that God gives you that supernatural ability. But then in chapter 4, he says, speak the truth in love. If you just speak the truth in love, then you will grow to become like Jesus. Right? So which one is it? Does God have to give us the supernatural ability to grow in our understanding of his love, or do we simply have to speak the truth in love? And the answer is yes. Right? It's both. But what Paul is communicating is that there is a direct correlation between how we speak to each other and our ability to grow in our understanding of his love. That when we speak the truth in love, we enable the believers around us to experience more of God's love. Which means that perhaps the most tangible way that we communicate God's love to others is through our words. How we speak to each other and how we talk about others when we are together. So obvious questions. Right? Do our words enable others to grow? Do our words help people to grow in their understanding of how much God loves them? Or on the flip side, when we're around other believers, 
when we're here at church at CBC, do the words of others. Help us to grow in our understanding of how much God loves us. Do we feel more loved? Do we feel and experience God's grace and his goodness? What do our words communicate when we speak and when we talk? Now, as we continue our way through this passage, we're going to see kind of three practical, very tangible ways we can use our words to build up, to help others experience God's love. The uh, first way, well, one way we can use our words to help build others up is by over-encouraging one another. So whatever your comfort level is, whatever your quota for the day, whatever your rhythm is when it comes to encouraging people, do more. Encourage more. Encourage, encourage, encourage. When we encourage someone, right, basically we are saying something that helps them to feel better about themselves, about their situation or their circumstances. It's a way to bless them, uplift them, inspire them. I think for most of us, we can say when somebody encourages us, right, like it feels, it feels good, it moves us. However, the, the goal of encouraging someone, it's not to simply make them feel better, although most likely they will feel better. But that's not the goal. The goal is not that we say something so they're like, wow, they're so nice and encouraging. I like them. The goal of encouraging is to communicate truth. It is to speak the truth in love. See, when Paul says to speak the truth in love, what truth is he referring to? Everything he just told us in chapters 1 through 3. Everything God has done for us. So when we encourage someone, we are using our words to remind them, like brother, sister, fellow believer, you are more loved than you will ever know. Because of Jesus all your sins, past, present, future, have all been forgiven and paid for. You've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus, white as snow, made worthy of every spiritual blessing. Right? Because of, of Jesus, you are adopted. You have been elevated to the status of son or daughter. You are a child of God in whom he is well pleased. Right? Because of Jesus, you are invaluable and irreplaceable in the body of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that we have to exactly you know, say those exact words. But to encourage someone is to remind them of these truths. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter what we say. It's, it's the motive in the heart to communicate what is true about who they are in light of what God has done. That even if someone may seem insignificant in the eyes of the world, if someone may seem undeserving of any blessing in the eyes of the world, we can communicate through our words that they are significant, that they are worthy of blessing, not because of what the world says, but because of what God says. Maybe it's just telling someone straight up how much we care about them. 
that they are loved and valued. You know, I appreciate Matt Wada because he'll just walk up and tell people, I love you. I love you. And the reason he tells people he loves them is because he loves them. So one way to tell people that they're loved is to, to tell people that they're loved. When someone is maybe struggling with, with sin and temptation, encouragement might be to, to, to remind them that they're forgiven. To remind them that Jesus has already paid for it. That there's no need for, for shame or condemnation. When someone is, is taking the, the a risk of faith by using their spiritual gifts to serve the body, encouragement might be to, to, to thank them, to show genuine gratitude and appreciation for someone using their gifts to build up the body, regardless of how developed or seasoned they may be in their gifting. When we meet someone new, when we see someone we, we've never met before. Encouragement might be walking up to them, introducing yourself, and just asking question after question, showing a genuine interest in getting to know them because they are someone who is invaluable in the eyes of God. Maybe it's seeing someone that we haven't seen in a while, and it's showing a genuine excitement and joy at their presence. It's good to see you. So glad you're here. Now the caveat to all this is it has to be genuine, right? It has to be sincere or else it's not truthful. I think a lot of times uh, you know, the reason why maybe some of us, we don't feel the need or the urgency to encourage, encourage, encourage is, is not because we don't want to be encouraging. Like I, I think most of us were not like opposed to be the encouraging type. And I want people to see me as the encouraging type. Right? My guess is, you know, we, we want to be encouraging. We, we'd like to view ourselves as somewhat, you know, encouraging to those around us. But I think a lot of times we don't feel the urgency to encourage someone because I think we assume that they already know. That they know that they're loved. They know that they're valued, right? I mean, if they're a Christian and they're coming to church, they know that God loves them, died for them, that they're forgiven, that they've been given a spiritual gift that makes them invaluable. So we just assume that, you know, we don't need to tell them because they know. But it's one thing to know something intellectually, theologically, and it's another thing to know it relationally. Right? Intellectually, we can believe something is true, but relationally, it's, we need to be reminded. Right? We need to be constantly reassured. The combination of sin, the devil who's the father of lies, living in a broken, sinful world, it's, it's easy to become doubtful. It's easy to begin to wonder, am I really loved? Am I really valued? Am I really accepted? I remember when I was uh, doing youth ministry in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, back, back in 2006, 2010, and I was uh, serving in a Chinese-American church, and, and the church was mostly Asian-American, not too different than us. And I remember one night at youth group, uh, we had a visitor, and she, she wasn't Asian. And uh, she had come with one of you know, our students, and 
She had gone to another church, belonged to another youth group, but she just wanted to visit, and she, you know, seemed to have a great time. And at one point, she, she walks up to me, and I'm like, hey, nice to meet you. You having a good time? She goes, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And she then asked me, um, am I allowed to be here? And I kind of suspected where she was taking that, but I was like, well, what do you mean, am I allowed to be here? And she's like, you know, I really like it here, but, you know, am I allowed to, to be here? pointing to the color of her skin. And obviously I did everything I could to assure her that she was allowed to be here and welcomed here and loved here, but she needed to, to hear it. Right here is a student who is going to church, going to church, and she knew that God loves her. She knew that we were one body, united in Christ, but she needed to hear that she was welcomed. She needed to hear that she was loved and accepted. And I think we all know, right, that it's one thing to know something intellectually, it's, it's another thing to know, it, to, to know it relationally. That on any given Sunday, whether here or, you know, whether at a family gathering or getting together with friends, what we say, how we interact, it affects how, he fe how we feel whether we feel loved, whether we feel valued, whether we feel accepted. So we can't assume that everyone just knows that they are loved. So let us over-encourage. Let us encourage more than we normally do. Maybe we can tell them directly. Maybe we can write them a letter, wait another week, send them an email, shoot them a text. And the beauty of encouragement is that it's, it's free and it's, you know, it's cheap. It's relatively easy to do, but it's significantly impactful in our ability to experience God's love and to grow and develop. Okay, another way we can use our words to build up is we can discuss truth with one another. That we can talk about what is true and what is not true. Uh, verses 17 to 25, uh, Paul continues. He says, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body." So he tells the believers, because you've been reconciled with Jesus, because you have unity with him, because you've been saved, uh, do not live like those who are still separated from Christ, those who don't know Jesus, because they don't understand who Jesus is, they don't understand what he wants, so they just live according to their desires, according to how the world tells them to live. He says, but you as a church, you know differently, you've been taught about Jesus, you know what Jesus desires. So live accordingly and, and talk about those truths. 
When we gather together as a church, and maybe this may be stating the obvious, right? when we gather together with believers, when we gather together as a church, it's important to talk about Jesus. If Jesus is the one who unites us, it's important to talk about who he is, what he's done, but also what he desires, what he's commanded, what he's instructed, right? to ultimately talk about what is true and, and what is not true. What is right? What is wrong? What is good? What is bad? What is healthy? What is unhealthy? What is helpful? What is harmful? What is godly? What is worldly? What is spirit-led? What is demonic? And I use the word discuss the truth because sometimes it may not always be clear what Jesus desires in a certain situation. And as believers, we need to come together, pray together, discern together. Now, on one hand, I think we see how this makes perfect sense. Right? If believers cannot come together and talk about what Jesus desires and cannot talk about truth, then like, where else can we talk about those things? Who else can we have those conversations with? It needs to be with believers. It needs to be when the church comes together that we talk about what Jesus desires. We talk about his opinions. We talk about what he wants in any and every situation, in every aspect and area of life. So on one hand, I think we get that. Like, yeah, like we as believers have to have those kinds of conversations. On the other hand, I think... For some of us, the thought of having those kinds of conversations can make us feel slightly uncomfortable. When we start getting into talks about what's right and what's wrong, what is true and what is false, what does Jesus want and what does he not want, those are kind of the conversations that we have seen before lead to a lot of division and a lot of disunity. So some of us, we just want to avoid those conversations altogether. There are certain topics when we as believers come together, we just, we don't talk about those topics because of the potential division and disunity. And I think one of the reasons why it's so hard to have those conversations, one of the reasons why those kinds of conversations can, can lead to division, when we start talking about what a sin is and what's not a sin, is because a lot of times when we have those conversations with believers and somebody disagrees with us or somebody calls us out on a certain behavior saying, hey, that's a sin, shouldn't be doing that, they'll usually preface that statement with, I'm just telling you this in love. But the reality is we're not really sure whether they truly love us or not. And because we're not sure where they're coming from, and we're not sure whether they truly love us and care about us, then when they come at us, we feel belittled, we feel judged, we feel condemned, we feel frowned upon, and thus it leads to division. Right? Hence the importance of over-encouraging. So that people know that we truly love them and care about them. So that when there is a time where there is a, a needed conversation that may be hard, that may be difficult, 
when we talk about topics that are personal or divisive, we know that this is a safe place, that you are a safe person that I can have this conversation with. So I would venture to say that these conversations where we discuss these hard truths, it's not with just anyone and everyone. But it's got to be people that you trust, people who you feel safe with, people who you know love Jesus and love you. But one way we use our words to build each other up is to be able to discuss truth. And then lastly, uh, be positive. We need to be positive with our words. We need to focus and highlight and magnify all that is good. Verses 29 to 31 says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. So Paul says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Now the word unwholesome, it carries the meaning of something that is rotting. Like rotting fruit or rotting flesh, something that is decaying, decomposing. And thus anything unwholesome is Anything that comes out of our mouth that is not ultimately life-giving, that is not spiritually nourishing, that does not help others to, to grow in their understanding of who God is, what he is like. It's to talk about people in such a way that doesn't reflect how God sees those people how God feels about those people. I'm not saying that we can't call sin a sin or call something wrong, wrong, or bad, bad. You know, we just talked about the importance of discussing truth. But we cannot simply dwell upon the negative. Right, so this may be things like gossiping. It may be things where we constantly complain or criticize. And a lot of times when we are choosing to gossip or maybe we're kind of stuck in, in a rut where we're just complaining and complaining and criticizing and criticizing, you know, a lot of times while what we may be saying is technically accurate, you know, like the person is sinful, those people are messed up, they did do something wrong, right? Even though what we're saying is technically accurate, when we choose to only focus on the negative, what we're choosing to, to not do is to also recognize that somewhere in this is a sovereign and loving God who is present, who is at work, and who loves and values those individuals far more than we will ever comprehend, right? And if what we communicate does not include the truth of how God sees things and how God feels about certain situations, then what we are saying is not technically true. You know, ever since my, my kids were, were little, 
Amber and I are, you know, we're talking about whatever. As soon as we start to talk about a person, especially if it's kind of in a negative light, it doesn't matter where in the house they are, it doesn't matter what they're doing, as soon as we drop a name, we'll hear it from somewhere. Who? What? What'd you say? Who are you talking about? Right, and when they were little, we can kind of play it off. Right, like, oh yeah, we were talking about some NFL guy named Bob, you know, like. But they know now. They know exactly who we're talking about. They know what we're talking about. They know when we're not telling them everything. And what we came to recognize is that everything we say, especially when we're talking about people, it affects how our kids not only see those people, but it affects how our kids perceive God's view of those people. And thus, everything we say, it either builds them up or it tears them down. It either helps them to spiritually grow in their understanding of how loving God is or it prevents them from growing in their understanding of how loving God is. That's why in Philippians 4, 8 through 9, Paul says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. Think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Our words need to highlight and magnify all that is good. It needs to reflect who God is in any and every situation. And I love how Paul kind of concludes this, this section in verse 32. It says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. In other words, Paul knew from the beginning that if we try our hardest to make every effort to maintain the unity, if we do everything we can to speak the truth in order to build each other up, we're going to mess up at times. We're not going to get this perfect. We're going to hurt each other. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be opportunities for division and disunity. So he says, and when those happen, forgive each other. Be quick to forgive just as Christ has forgiven you. Now, maybe some of you, after hearing all this, you're, you're thinking to yourself, like, I don't even feel like talking now. Like, I don't even know what to say, what not to say. I don't want to say anything wrong. You know, maybe you're thinking, like, I can't be me now. And I got to be, like, fake happy, fake nice, super encouraging to everybody. Like, you're thinking, I just don't have enough love in the tank to use every single word to build people up. As we've been saying from the beginning of this series, in order to obey the love commands, we cannot do it with our own strength. We need God to, to change our hearts. We need him to, to help us to become like him. On one hand, we need to say that prayer that Paul prayed. God, we need the supernatural ability to understand your love so that we can grow to be like you. 
At the same time, we need to surround ourselves with other believers who will speak the truth in love. Believers who will over-encourage us. Believers who will create a safe place for us to discuss truth when it's necessary and appropriate. Believers who will focus on the good. Whose words will magnify who God is in every conversation. So who are those people in your life? Who are the people who, when you're around, you just feel more loved and accepted? Who are the people you feel safe around? Who you trust to be able to have a hard conversation, to be able to discuss truth? Who are the people who, for whatever reason, when they talk about people or different situations, it inspires faith and, and hope? And whoever those people are, I say, just get around those people. Ask them to, to meet up for coffee. Rub shoulders with them. Try to get into their small groups so that their words can help you grow in your understanding of how much God loves you. As we close our time this morning, as we move back into a time of worship through song and praise, you know, we're going to reflect once again on just how much God loves us, how great his love is for each and every one of us. Yet when we sing these songs, when we are proclaiming his love, we're not just proclaiming his love for us as individuals. We are proclaiming his love for everyone around us, right? We are singing and declaring that God loves everyone here more than we will ever know, right? And in this way, we are speaking truth and love. We are using our words to build others up because we're telling one another how much they are loved. And at the same time, when we're singing and everybody's singing around us, they're not just singing to God directly about how much he loves them individually, but they're proclaiming God's love for us too. So as we worship and as we praise, let us declare with our mouths truth in love. And may we allow these words to carry over into our everyday lives so that our words will build up everyone around us. Will you pray with me?